Okay, here we are right now with today's big idea, today's discussion, a brand new conversation, some words to share. And today's conversation is on the mechanics of power. And we're going to look at power and discuss power and We're going to see how love is the power. Oh, isn't that nice? (laughs) Isn't that so cheesy? Love is the power. Well, actually, cheese aside, love is the power. And that's what we're discussing. That's what we're going to go into. Now, this conversation dovetails nicely with a previous conversation we had recently, which was called The Mechanics of War. War is, sorry, love is a war. So The Mechanics of War and the subtitle or the additional title was Love is a War. So this is sort of a parallel conversation that we're having because One of the things that came up in that was, well, where does power lie? How does power lie into it? And in that conversation, we talked about standing your ground, escalation, retreat, and surrender, and how those things play into war. And we were really connecting war with love And we had many examples there. But one of the things that we didn't go into was, well, how do we weave power through all of that? Where does power play into it? And that's what we're talking about here. That's what we've got happening today in this conversation. So we'll take our time with it, as always, and... Like so many conversations, you need all of the conversation for it to make sense, to really get the picture. So you really need every single word, concept, idea, explanation at the same time. And yet I can only have them unfold in a linear fashion. So each word, each key word that I give in this conversation, hold it in you And understand that that fits in with a piece somewhere else. Almost like each word is a piece of a jigsaw puzzle and you need to fit them all together. And a piece doesn't really reveal much by itself without the rest of the puzzle. And just to really expand a little bit on the structure of understanding, we need to recognize that We can equate one thing with another, and also we cannot equate one thing with another. This might seem like a double contradiction, but it's not. It's something, well, it's a paradox. It's something that has to be resolved. It's something you must understand for any of this to make sense to you. So for me to say love is the power, in just that statement, 
we have one thing being equated to another, which in so many ways cannot be equated with another. It's almost like a chair is a chair and a tree is a tree, right? You see how that's how it is and that's how it's always going to be. A tree is never going to be a chair and a chair is never going to be a tree. It wouldn't be fair for me to go outside and point at a tree and say that is a chair or to point at a chair and say that is a tree. Now, that is one way of looking at how things cannot be equated to each other. And that's true. That will always be true. A chair will always be a chair and a tree will always be a tree and they will always be separate. Now, the other side is that, well, actually, paradoxically, if we go along to the other side of the paradox, we can equate a chair with a tree and a tree with a chair. If we have the right contexts, we have the right situation, we have the right circumstances, then actually a tree is a chair. It might be quite simply that you're somewhere in the bushes and you feel you need to have a rest and you want to sit on something and there's a low-laying branch which would be just the right height in just the right shape for you to sit on. Now in that image, saying that this tree is my chair, I'm just on a bushwalk, I just need somewhere to rest before we continue on, Well, it's not actually that outlandish to say that the tree is the chair. It's not that hard to understand. And you could say, well, the other way works as well. You could say that the chair is made out of a tree. It's come from the tree. It's a wooden chair. And there are certain designs in chair mania <laughs> in chair fashion <laughs> we could say whatever you whatever you call the the elitist chair creators <laughs> there are certain designs in that field in that world where the naturalness and the origins of the wood are crafted in such a way to maintain the knowledge that it came from a tree. You look at the chair and you can still see how it's been taken from nature and it's still got all its grooves and its cracks and its bits of bark and its different things. And there's quite an art to that. There's quite a deep power to having something that is from nature maintain its sort of rugged edginess which would be one of its qualities that make it as something from nature. And yet, even with that, it's crafted in such a way that it's modernized, it's clean, it's smooth. So if you look at these on wherever the place is that the chair creators display their work, you'll get to see what I mean by this. So... That's an easy example of a chair is a chair 
and a tree is a tree, and they will never be anything other than what they are, and yet also, under certain circumstances, in certain ways, a tree is a chair, and a chair is a tree. And that's the structure of what we mean by explaining how love is the power. When we talk about the mechanics of power. And really the only power is love. So I hope that helps as a sort of cognitive shape or a sort of metaphorical explanation of what we're doing here and how it is that all the pieces fit together. Now, of course, love is a little bit more complicated than a chair. And the connection between love and power is a little bit more complicated than just saying maybe someone made the chair out of a tree. So keep that in mind. That's what we're working with. That's what's going on here. And of course, also, the explanations are not limited. The lines that we're choosing between the connection of the two things are non-exhaustive. So there are more connections to be made than just what we talk about here. Just like there will also be more examples to give than just what we are giving here. The examples that I came up with, they're just from my tiny little brain. It's a pea-sized brain, really. Tiny little thing. Very little examples. Out of the great pantheon of examples that could come to anyone's mind or could be given in this discussion. So if you're getting it, this will be an indication of if you're understanding what I'm saying. What will happen is you will start seeing your own examples appearing in your mind. You'll see how, as you listen to my examples, how it also applies somewhere else. And that's something that I can't think of. Because my pea-sized brain can't get into the vast mega-brain of existence. And you'll be able to use your, well, you'll be going from What's happening when you're having your own examples is you're going from your pea-sized brain into your mega brain, your vast brain, the brain of existence. That's the realization. That's the understanding. That's the cognization occurring as you understand what it is that we're talking about. Okay, so here we go. The mechanics of power. Probably... A good place to kick off is to say, well, what, what do we mean by power? When you say someone is powerful, what does that mean? Think of someone who's powerful, who you would say is powerful, and then answer, well, what, what is it that they have in them? What is it that they can do? And maybe for many people, what comes is the image of some big political leader, a dictator, someone who has power over the people of an entire nation. And that's a good place to start. That's a good 
image to keep in mind. That's a good example of where all of the mechanics of power converge in so many ways. But there's another one that's important. There's another thing, which is the personal, as in you, yourself, example of power. Because if we say to someone who lives in a country where there's this powerful dictator, we ask them, well, does, does this person have power? You say, well, they might say, well, yes, they're all powerful. They create policies, they affect the economy, their choices, their fame, their influence. They're, they're the most powerful person that I can think of. But then you can say to that same person, well, how does their power affect you? And if they're well thought out, if they actually have a way of understanding how politics relates to their life, they'll be able to explain from their personal experiences how the dictator has affected, or the political leader has affected their life with the choices that they've made. And that will be a personal story. They'll say something like, well, I had this job. For This is just an example that has happened in my country. Well, I had this job and then this policy was passed, this law was passed where the wages changed. And so I was being paid less. And so I got upset and frustrated that I had a wage cut. So I quit that job. And that would be a personal story. That would be the individual with their immediate experience of affectation. Now, this elaborate connection between the political leader and the personal story is really only one example of what someone would say as what power is or what a powerful person is. The other example which is more important is the one that is immediate and all-pervasive in their life. And this is in the personal relationships. This is the one that doesn't come to mind when you ask someone who is powerful. And yet it is that they are even more powerful by a long shot than the political leader. And this would be someone like your intimate partner. So you could say, does your, does your wife or your husband have power over you? Does your mother or your father have power over you? Do your children have power over you? And these examples really get at the point that power is affectation. Power is that someone can affect you. And it's the people that are involved in your relationships that have the power over you. And this is how power comes back to love. This is how power is connected to love. It's much easier to see what that means. Because if you love someone, if you really love someone, they have all the power 
in the world over you. And I've been, I want to say I've been fortunate to have experienced this but I've also been <laughs> I've also been quite terrified to have experienced this in certain situations. And this is this is why I'm talking about it, because of my own experiences. And you really have to you really have to have the experience yourself to know how powerful love is. When you when you have someone that really does love you and you really do love them, that is a power that just blows everything out of the water. It completely, it, it, it's rapturing. That person, that person can just say a few words. They can just mention something. And your whole life, can change. Your whole being, your whole core can be shaken. And it can be a positive thing or a negative thing. It can be something that you enjoy. It can be a pleasant sensation. And we'll get to a bit more about sensation in a minute. But Understand that the positive and the negative are related. The person that has the power over you has the power to give you the most incredible positive feelings and the most destructive negative feelings. And that is love. That is a total power. That is personal. That is immediate. That is experiential. So keep those two things in mind. Keep those two connections. We've got the dictator or the political leader and the intimate other or the intimate person that you know personally and how they are connected to your life. Now, let's get into a little bit of the mechanics of affectation. And another word for this can be force. So we're going to look at force as well a little bit later on. And basically, if someone, if someone can, affect, can affect you, then they can force something onto you. But to first get into a few different levels of experiencing. So this is important to understand. We've talked about this before in different ways, but it's important to really go over this again and really make it clear and appropriate to what we're talking about here. So there is even a, there is even a deeper structure here which you can use for experiential divisions and understanding of phenomenon. And we're just using love as the example. It doesn't matter if you don't get that. Just understand the different levels. So I'm calling them levels, but maybe levels isn't the right word. Maybe it's just the word that we have. So you have your experience, your phenomenon of reality. It's one thing, the oneness of everything. And within that, 
there are a few divisions that we make or a few levels that we have. And love appears at every level. Now, what we call love and what we say, oh, that's love, depends on our experience of love at each level or each place in our experience. So let's get into the actual levels. Let's just say, let's just say, I mean, the, the, the numbers are arbitrary. So yeah, I mean, why, why am I hesitating? There's, there's a reason why I'm hesitating. I don't want... I don't want the I don't want the levels thing to put you off. I don't want the thing with see see the problem with levels is that it it implies one is better than the other. And that's what we can't do. Really think of these as different flavors. Think of them as just different rather than higher or lower or better or worse. So if we're going to talk about levels, then that, that has to be understood. And really, we could find some other structure which isn't levels. Maybe we can call them corners. They're all corners to the same cube or something like that. It's just a different shape. It's just a way of speaking. So I think that's why I'm hesitating to call them levels. <laughs> it might be that I'm just not entirely clear just yet, but... I'm pretty sure that's it. So keep that in mind. These are these are corners of the same cube rather than levels. So let, let's go with that. I think that's fair enough. That's easy enough to understand. So corner one is emotion. So there is the emotion of love. Corner two is the sensation. So this is the bodily sensation. Corner three is the state. You are in the state of love. Corner four would be the mind or thoughts. And corner five would be the quality of existence. So... Stick with me if you're not following, because we are actually also going to get into the flip side of these, the flip side of love, which is fear. And that's really how we start to see the connection between someone who supposedly has a lot of power because they're inflicting a lot of fear, when really the only power is love. So just let me anchor that as another thing that's coming later on, but... Let's get into these corners into a bit of detail. So emotion is a feeling. The emotion of love comes from inside the chest, comes from the heart. And when you feel the emotion of love, that is a particular experience. It's a particular romantic experience, we could say. The emotion is for romance. And if you look at an emotional chart with different, uh, what we could say, 
temperatures and where they sit within the body, then you would see that the emotion of love is a very warm feeling that's all over the body. And it's sort of radiating out from the inside of the heart, the chest, in this, the very core of the body. And that's emotion. And then we have sensation. So sensation is also a feeling. It's an experience. And that's something that's more energetic. And it's really quite difficult to distinguish the two because of just the limited words we have. Because we could say that emotion is the energy radiating out. And yet also we could say that, no, we don't use the word energy for emotion. We use the word energy for the energy body. Energy is different to emotion. And we say sensation is different to feeling. But these kind of gradations, they don't matter too much. It's just to understand the different complexities within your experience. And sensation is, when you, when you have the experience, it is qualitatively different in experience to emotion. So to experience an emotion is different to experiencing a sensation. And there are certain techniques that you can do that will differentiate those. Because you can go into the energy body and you just work with energy. And that will exclude, in fact, emotions. You won't come out of those experiences. When you do the techniques for the energy body and for sensation, you don't come out of that experience using emotional words. You wouldn't say, oh, I was sad, I was happy, I was full of joy, I was full of these sorts of, these sorts of descriptive words. You would say things like, oh, it was tingling or it was like electricity, or it was prickly on my skin, or I felt sensitive, these sorts of words. And then vice versa, when you go into the emotional side, well, then you would be using the emotional words. You wouldn't be saying what, what is happening sensationally in your body. You'd be saying, what is the descriptive word, like a poem? You might want to write a poem in order to express yourself. So that's a little bit of different. That's a little bit about the difference between emotion and sensation. And then we have state. Now, state is like another thing again, which steps sort of outwards. And you can you can also sort of see this as like gradations. Emotions blur into sensations, and sensations blur into the state. And the state it encompasses something more. It encompasses an experience which is, well, all of the components happening harmoniously together. And it's not just feelings and sensations, but it's also the mind and perceptions. When you have a state, there's a component of perception unlike sensation or emotion. The sounds, the sights, the smells, they are part of the state, along with the experience and the rest of the things that you can divide up within the experience. 
And in fact, you can do state training, like you can do emotional training and sensation training or energy body training. You can do state training, and that will be qualitatively different. So when love is a state, it is like everything has love. Well, I'm getting a bit far ahead there. So it's like you see... You see how everything holds love within it and yet you still have this idea that it's only within you. You only see that things have love because you are seeing the love in them. And that might not make sense just yet, but let me go on to some of the other sides which will help understand that or help clarify that a little bit more because another one of our corners or the last corner we're going to skip over the mind but the last quality of love is the quality of existence and that is well that is everything so it's not just your perceptions and your experience but it's also all of the cosmos And when you see love, when you experience love on that level, in that corner, then you see love as a force that is behind everything. So you've heard this, you've heard on many occasions in different places that love is the ultimate factor of the universe, something like that, or some, some variation of that, right? Love pervades all things. Love is everywhere. Love is in the air. These sorts of things. And all the rest of it, all the different ways in which that can be said. You've heard that. And then you would think, well, well, really? I mean, does that mean my my kitchen knife and fork has love in it? That doesn't make any sense. Love is an emotion. And that's where you see that love as a phenomenon can exist through every single corner or every single level. Now, to just step back a little bit and talk about the mind. The mind is, well, damn, what can we say about the mind? How do we finish that sen- <laughs> How do we finish that sentence? The mind is. <laughs> the mind the mind sits in this experience as something that you can't really have love in the mind there's no real there's no real way in which we would say that love is in the mind or there's it, it's like if you have love in all of the corners of emotion sensation state and existence then the mind becomes sort of this little thing, sort of after the fact. And in fact, you could say that certain states of love have no mind. And there are many practices which are poised at getting rid of the mind, dissolving the mind completely. Because many spiritual practitioners have worked out that when you have love, 
when you experience love, you don't really think. There are no thoughts bouncing around in your head. Now, the other way to look at this is, well, when the mind is active, when the mind is the dominant thing within your experience, that's when thoughts are the most real thing. They're the most pressing thing. Well, then you're not in a state. Then you're not having sensations. Then you're not having an emotion. You're somewhere else completely. So the mind is a tricky one. It, it's, it's like we, we have these things which are qualitatively different and love can be threaded through all of them except for the mind. The mind really is that one outlier that, that doesn't fit everything. So another way to look at this is to, and this might be a bit more practical with how you want to go about actually getting into these is to say that you can have something or you can be something. And that happens for every level. So you can have an an emotion or you can be an emotion. You can have a sensation or you can be the sensation. You can have a state experience or you can be in the state. You can have a thought or you can be that thought. That thought can be you. You are that thought when it's all that you are. And then there is also the quality of existence itself. You can have existence or you can be existence. So right now it probably feels like existence is this thing that you are walking around in. You're walking through life and the world is something you stand on and interact with as this separate entity. And if you really transcend that and if you really go through it, you can be the world. You can be existence. And that's where you get into non-dual work and ego dissolving. So, you can have love or you can be love. And really where you're at with these different levels, with these different corners, in terms of the intensity, will tell you how you are moving through them, how they're unfolding within you. So to go into something, so so let's say if you're going into one of these corners, what you're doing is you're you're being one of those things. And if you're doing a technique or a method that will bring you into, say, say just an emotion, say, if we're, say, say just for example, emotions, then it's bringing you to be that emotion. It's, it's such, an inten- such an intense emotion that it's the only thing that is in your experience. You're not, you're not thinking about something. You're not looking at something. 
You're not talking. You're not aware of other things somewhere else. The only thing that is there is the emotion. And as soon as someone comes along and taps you on the shoulder and says, what are you feeling right now? Or what emotion are you in? Then you have to think about it. You have to step out. You have to put a word to it. And then immediately there's someone who's having the emotion rather than being the emotion. And that is just a small step. That is just a little increment. And that is just part of the work that is done with emotional work. But that's the difference. That's the step. It's your, your Really, if you're working with these, you're going back between the two. You're going back and forth between having an emotion and being the emotion. And it's the same with states. It's the same with the mind. It's the same with sensation. It's the same with existence. And of course, initially, when you're first doing these things, you're actually needing to break into. <laughs> there's, this, there's this moment where you break in, right? To, to, to move in and out of these different corners is an advanced thing to do. That only comes with experience. That comes with work. To be able to really see them clearly and identify them experientially, that comes after a lot of practice. Really, the initial thing that you're doing is you're actually trying to just break into it. Now, it is possible that people don't even have strong emotions. might have been years since you've had a strong emotion. It might have been years since you've had a strong sensation. And it might be not quite as long since you had a strong thought. And usually maybe it's the case we could say that the mind doesn't really need that much help in running amok of things. It's the emotions and the sensations that need more attention. They're the neglected parts of our experience. And just breaking in, well, that's, that's an amazing thing. That's called, that's called an opening, right? That's the guy that has spent his whole life thinking. And he is put into this situation where the only response that can be had is emotional. You literally force that person to have an emotion. Now, to actually be thinking like I'm going to go into this voluntarily with awareness for the purposes of opening my being, well, that is like, that is really, really high level stuff. That is, that is just a, a phenomenal amount of intelligence for someone to do that, for someone to have that in them. Most of the time, they're not even aware of that as an option or that as something that's important, something that needs to be done. And in fact, well, life gives many opportunities to break into emotions. And the people that don't understand that actually work very hard to keep them at bay, to keep them apart to keep them away from them at all costs.
So that's a little bit about love. Now, when we look at fear, which is something that we can put into all of these, right? We can have the emotion of fear. We can have the sensation of fear. You can be in a state of fear. You can be in fear in your mind. And you can have the quality of existence in fear. So that would be an existential angst, an existential worry. And fear, well, to break that into a few more complexes, has a few other components to it or a few ways in which it appears. So, for example, I mean, I want to say, I mean, a lot of people will say that fear is fundamentally this or fear is fundamentally that. And it'll just depend on what it is they're talking to, to or about or how they're applying fear as an idea or an understanding as to how that will resonate. But there are a few things that I'd like to say that fear is or what we fear fundamentally. And I know it's a bit hard to... I mean, there's something that is... I don't want to oversimplify it. This is another sort of hurdle that we have to get over, like the levels thing. The oversimplification of fear is something that needs to be checked. So so even this thing of, well, the, the whole world is divided into love and fear. Even that is just like, well, okay, thank you, Donnie Darko, for explaining that to us. Where's the complexity? Where's the real nuance? Where's the actual mechanics? It's like saying a a car is just a steering wheel and the wheels on the road. That's a good analogy. I think that's pretty much like the same, exactly the same as saying love and fear are two things. Where are the mechanics? So I'll, I'll give you what I've come up with for a few finer gradations of fear, but understand that there are further gradations to make. So I don't want it I don't want it to come across as saying fundamentally we all fear these things and fear comes back to those things. Which it might appear that they apply and they do apply and that is the case, but it's still an oversimplification. So here we go for some of the mechanics of fear. Non-survival. So we fear death. We fear the end of something. We fear pain. We fear hurt. We fear suffering. And we fear prison. We fear isolation. And lastly, we fear the end of belonging or rejection or being outcast. So even in those, you can see that they're very general. They're very broad. And yet, you can see how they still apply to all the levels of experience, emotion, So look at emotion for non-survival. When we have a good feeling, 
Our fear is that that good feeling won't last. When we fear pain, we fear the negative emotional component of our experience. And this comes across just in our words. Someone can say, I'm in pain when nothing has happened to their physical body. They really mean emotional pain. I feel hurt. That's an emotional pain. And then there's also just suffering and also an imprisonment of our emotions. This is very subtle. This is something that doesn't come across consciously for many people, I don't think. But to be imprisoned emotionally means that you cannot have the range of emotions which you are wanting to have. Emotional freedom means being able to have all sorts of feelings and sensations. And fear can bring us to not have that emotional range. Now, I talk about fear like it's this protagonist here. I don't want it to come across that way. I mean, there's... I mean, we could talk about power like how does one person have power over another? And then we can also talk about the individual and how do they have power over themselves? Or how do they relate to power as a phenomenon within their life? So let's just go through that. There's the the personal and the relational. And it comes back to force. So when someone has force over you, they have power over you. And force applies to love and to fear and to all the levels or the corners of your experience. So, for example, when you have emotion, you have two people, and one forces an emotion onto the other. Can you hold that in mind? Can you see that? So there's two people in a room. One of them is going to cause the other to have an emotion. They're going to force an emotion onto them. Same goes for sensation. In a different way, two emotions, two people in a room can cause one person to force a sensation onto someone else. Same goes for the mind. When two people in a, are in a room, minds are combining. And through language, 
One mind is being affected by the other. One mind is having its force imprinted onto another. And then we can also say quality of existence. When there's two people in a room, one person's quality of existence affects another. It is forced onto another. Now, in this image, it's actually okay to just do away with the gradations. Because we can put this simply and say that when there are two people in a room, they affect each other in many ways. And really, that's all there is to it. It's as simple as that. And we can talk about, well, how do they affect each other? How much do they affect each other? And what qualities are more likely to be passed between the two? What sort of experiences are to be put between the two? Or to be had between the two? Or to be taken from one to another? Or given from one to another? And that's, that's a big question. That's quite a deep question. And if we come back, well, if we come back really to love and to fear, then we can say that, well, those two are the most effective. They're the most powerful forces. If you are in a room with someone and you can put fear into them, you will have power over them. Or they will have power over you. whichever way you're looking at it. And the same goes for love. If you can be in a room with someone and you can affect them with love, then you will have the power over them. And you could say, well, what's, what's better? Is it better to incite fear or to incite love? Is it better to, is it, well, which one's easier, right? We can say, is it easier to cause someone to be in fear or to feel love? And I don't want to answer that. I don't want to actually jump too quickly to a conclusion. I don't think we should be too quick to answer that. And there are also, I mean, other components to it as well. There are other mechanics going on because thoughts and words move across much quicker than emotions. So if you're in a room with someone and you need to give them just a quick bit of information, you, you can say it to them, whatever it is. And depending on how complex it is, well, sure, there's a limit to it, but it can go across quite fast through language. Whereas emotions, emotions are much slower. They're much deeper. So for someone to be putting an emotion onto someone, they might have to talk for a little bit. It's like if I told you a happy story or a sad story. 
And that would be more words that would lead you into an emotion. And then also you have the state, which is perhaps slower again. And then slower again or bigger again is the quality of existence. And furthermore, we can say, well, what is easy and what is hard? For some people, it might be very easy for them to import a state of existence onto others. And that's where you get into power. That's where you see the exact point of what power is. To be able to put something onto another easily, whether it's a state or an emotion or a sensation or a quality of mind or a quality of existence, well, that is power. That really is all it comes down to. So you could say, well, I don't want to react. What if you don't react? What if you stand your ground? What if you don't accept something? What if you, what if you close yourself to someone? Well, that really doesn't see what's going on. That's really just some sort of like, it's like, it's like an illusion of what it means to actually be in the situation where you're encountering someone. And really another way, another way to look at that or another way to understand that is the more you know yourself and the more awareness you have, the more you're actually able to contend with that. People who don't, because, because you can try, right? You can test it out. You can walk into a room with someone powerful, supposedly, whatever, whatever idea that is, whether it's someone who incites fear or someone who incites love, you walk into that room and you say, I'm not, I'm not going to let them affect me. I'm going to ignore what they say. I'm not going to listen to what they say. I'm not going to change my mind. I'm going to be completely closed. Now, even in that, you will be affected in a certain way. Even in that, they do have a power over you because of your reaction, because of your closeness. You're still in relation to that person. You're still in a kind of resistance to that person. And another way to go about doing this is to actually be open to the person. Think of the flip side. You can go in and say, I'm going to be devoted to that person. I'm going to accept whatever they say. I'm going to feel however they are making me feel. I'm going to do whatever they tell me to do. I'm going to be really honest about how they are affecting me in all the ways that they can. And I'm going to accept that and be open to that and allow that. And that's very different. That's an actual kind of power. It's a kind of reversal of the power. That's a kind of turning it upside down. It's flipping it around. Because if you choose to accept something, well, 
The power rests in your choice. The power rests in your openness. And this is where devotion comes in. This is why people are dedicated to spiritual leaders. Which probably brings me nicely now to some actual examples of types of people that we can look at and apply all of this to. But to sort of sort of dovetail back to the relational and the personal, I, I hope you start to see like this thing of this thing of self-knowledge or either accepting someone and being open to someone or closing yourself to someone, that, that comes to the personal. That comes back to how it's your own individual knowledge and experience that's determining the quality of what's happening. And yet it's still relational. So the relational and the personal, they make their effect. They happen at exactly the same time. They're happening concordantly because we're all connected, because we're unable to really isolate those. And if you're doing a technique, if you're working on this consciously, then you are separating the two. You are, you are saying, okay, this is my personal work or my personal awareness, and then this is my relational awareness. Well, this is my relational work. But really, that's just the purposes of technique and process and development. Ultimately, they're one in the same. Well, well not, they're not one in the same. They're, they're, they're inseverable, inseparable from each other. So don't get me wrong. It's not a matter of... Yeah, I don't, I don't know if we need to slog that anymore. I think... I think for me it's clear. It's like if you're practicing a technique, then you make distinctions in order to get the technique to work. Whereas if you're coming to understand something in a big picture view, then you dissolve those distinctions. And so that's how we understand relational and personal. So another funny thing that comes to mind, which I wanted to say about force, is that you actually see this in Star Wars. What is the force? The force is everywhere, right? You remember Master Yoda talking about the force that surrounds us. And when he fights with the bad guy, the Lord Sidious, Sidious, I've forgotten how to pronounce it, but what is that? That's the good guy and the bad guy and the thing that is between them is the force. Who can impress more on who? Who can use their force onto the other? And what does Yoda do? He absorbs it. He absorbs the electricity. He absorbs the force that is coming towards him. You see that in so many ways. So this is very much well understood by the creators of a 
one of the most mainstream movies of all time, the most mainstream franchises of all time. And probably the reason it resonates so much is because it is in everything. Because we do understand it. At least not, if not explicitly, at least implicitly. And this whole thing of Yoda and the bad guy, the good good versus evil, comes down to one affecting the other. And it's the greatest drama. Which one will push onto the other? Which one will have their force onto the other? Is it going to be good or evil? And that's the whole interest in any story, in any situation, in any relationship. So the force, in terms of the Star Wars meaning of the word force, is exactly the same as what we mean here. The force, the force literally exists. It is a real-life thing. There's no, there's no metaphor. There's no magic. There's no fairy tale thing. It, it, it is literally the force. So I want to go now into some types of people to sort of flesh out these examples or these mechanics. But I think there was something else. Yeah, there's there's one level that I'm forgetting. There's one level which is which I haven't mentioned, which I've left off. Or one one corner which is the physical level. And this this is easy enough to understand. Like if I can force something physically, then that's a kind of power over someone. So if I can if I can like punch you in the face or I can restrain you physically, then that plays into all of these. And that's just another corner which has all the same examples. It can have all the same types of mechanics it has its own manifestations it has its own backs and forths and it works with fear and with love and with pain and sensation and emotion and all those things so physical is just another level and you can understand now well physics to to affect someone physically you affect them differently to how you affect them emotionally that's a good way of seeing how each corner is different like if i want to put your body into a physical something like it's gross realm it's the hard matter it's like the the actual you know like this is the the stuff and to force that to to work with that well then that's going to have different mechanics to it or different ways in which it comes about as compared to the emotional sphere or corner, the emotional corner or the mind corner. Someone who's working with the physical stuff, like it's the difference between a bricklayer 
and someone who does emotional work. Now, when someone does emotional work, they're trying to create an emotion in someone. When someone does bricklaying, they're trying to get the bricks into the shape of a house. And it's the same thing. It's just different corners. Now, another thing that actually brings up, which I wanted to say, and another thing that comes up is this idea of bottom down, sorry, sorry, bottom up and top down. Because you can say, well, well, which comes first, the emotion or the physical? Like if I put a certain kind of emotion into that bricklayer, are they then going to be putting the bricks on faster? Like if I motivate them, or there's some sort of incentive or something, well, well, well the, the funny thing is that the incentive would be more in the level of the mind, wouldn't it? Like how do the, how do the corners affect each other? And that's just the question of what is bottom down, sorry, top down, bottom up. Which comes first? And the answer is, well, it depends where you're coming from. It depends on the quality. The mind can affect emotions. The mind can affect behaviors, the physical sphere. The mind can affect sensations. The mind can affect your quality of existence. Sometimes the mind, for many people, I think, in so many ways, the mind is the arbiter of all the other corners. It's the point of cause. And for other people, from another way of looking at it, or another way of being, the emotion is the point of cause. And you can argue this. You can say, well, we only think things because of what we're feeling. And really, I, I, I mean, I see it as the chicken or the egg. I mean, you can go into, when, when you're working with these things consciously, you're discovering exactly what it is that causes what within you. So to talk about it and to try and explain it, this is just, this is just psychology. This is just examples of thought. This is just moments of thought. It's just explanations. So to answer the question, which corner of experience affects another or the others, you would say, find out for yourself experientially by exploring all of them. Which is another way of saying they all affect each other in different ways. The chicken or the egg is the answer to that. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? And when you do that, you will end up saying things like, we all come back to our feelings, or feelings are the most powerful thing, or sensations are the most powerful thing, or your existential nature is the most powerful thing. And that will just be how you have understood those experiences, how you're talking about those experiences. And really, this does come back to love. Because when you experience love, 
all, all of that just gets it. It's like the whole cube. When you really experience love on every level, the whole cube is blown to pieces. The corners they they smash into a thousand pieces, and they're all over the place. It's this huge, just cataclysmic, just just. And when you have that, you realize that love goes into everything and it is the most powerful thing. If you're saying something like feelings are the most powerful things or the mind is the most powerful thing or the mind is powerful, if not the most powerful thing, then that's indicating where you're at with your range of experiences. And when you really break through, when you really get a a strong dose, like a high dose of love on all levels, then then you see, wow, you just think you you go, it's it you're speechless. You literally cannot say there are not words for it. So that would be something to look out for when you're experiencing. Because, I mean, another reaction to this is that you say, well, okay, so now I've discovered this, so now I really need to do the work. Then you have a real deep motivation, right, to actually go into the different corners and explore the different corners, explore emotion, explore sensation, explore existentialism. Because you know that by doing that, it's going to lead you to that all-explosive opening experience of love, that power of love. So that answers the question of which, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which affects which, bottom-up or top-down? So as I was saying a few minutes ago, what we'll get into now is some examples of types of people and i don't mean personality types i mean what we would say i guess we would say they are role types like what is the role of someone in the story or in your life and this is a, this will be a little bit more practical and so as we go through these keep in mind fear and love, and how they come up through all the different parts of experience. Whether it be emotion, sensation, state, mind, or existence. So, first example is your boss, your employer. The person who has given you a job. Now you see that that person is paying you and you have to do something for them in order to receive that paycheck. Now, is that fear or is it love? Well, in such things, normally we don't have such heavy words applied to them. Usually it's a lot more 
like, well, I just need to pay some bills. I just need to make my way through life. I don't really feel that I either fear or love my situation or my relationship with my employer. Doesn't really have that sort of quality. Which is why, well, I think for so many people that work is just, it's just like, gah. If you really, if you really had to feel something with your work, at least feel that you hate it. At least feel, at least if you hate your job, you feel something strongly about it, right? And fear and non-survival and isolation and suffering comes into your employment situation. Because if you don't have your paycheck, you can't survive. You can't pay your bills. And that's a kind of suffering. And on the flip side, if you are paid, well, you have certain freedoms. There are certain things that you can do with money. And in that is the trade-off. Like, we, we could say, what, what is the mechanics of power? Well, money is power. Money is the only power. And that fits through all of this because money makes stuff happen. Money is the force. Money can cause physical things to happen. Money can cause emotions, sensations, states, and quality of existence. Just look at, look at how quality of existence and money are related. Because it's how much money you have that determines the quality of your house, the quality of your car, the quality of the place you live, the quality of the lifestyle, the life conditions, in such a gross, obvious way that you have. And it's very easy to see that. It's very easy, I think, for a lot of people to get caught up in that. So your employer and really money is something to be understood with the mechanics of power. What about a famous person? So when someone's famous, and, and you can get a sense of this, if you've ever met a famous person, there's a, there's a particular sensation that occurs within you. It's, it's a particular experience to become close to someone who's famous. That's why it's always, if you meet someone famous, you want to get your photo taken with them, right? That's, that's most people's sort of <laughs> initial impulse. Oh, I need to take a photo with them. I need to be seen with this person. I associate with this person. So there's something in that relationally that is causing you to have a certain experience. Now, a famous person can go both ways. It can be someone famous for a very negative reason and someone famous for a very positive reason. Now, I believe in this day and age, it's more likely that we meet the, the positive person. So maybe, so maybe like a famous musician, right? Your famous singer, your fam someone in your favorite band. That would be someone who would have a positive impression on you because of their fame. And it might be, well, think of a famous serial killer. 
if you actually met someone who was known as a famous serial killer or violent person, then there would be a power there as well. There would be a, an impression, a force coming onto you as well. And both sides, well, there's a powerful force. There's, there's, there's a sensation. I, I want to say sensation, but that's only part of it. There's an experience that happens between the two. And then there's another example, which is someone who's rich. This comes back to someone who... This comes back to the money thing. Like if you know someone has a lot of money, and often the famous person and the rich person, you know, there's a correlation there because people who have power, well, they're rich and famous. They're famous and they're rich. And it's like, well, which which came first? The power or the money, or the fame. And really, when you look at it, when you go into it, they all collapse. Money, power, and fame, they actually collapse in their meaning. Because all of those things still have to deal with two people in a room and one affecting another. It still comes down to two people in a room and what comes through as to what is being manifested between them. And there's so many... That that includes all of the different ways in which that happens. And people who understand this, people who, well, I mean, you can understand this and not understand this. It's not as though people who are rich, famous, and powerful are really consciously aware of these things. It's not like they've figured out, oh, I need to have lots of influence over people by causing certain emotions and states within them. So that when I'm in a room with a certain person, then I need to be causing those things. So how do I construct those things? It's not, it's not like there's this big scheme behind these people. It's not like they have these mechanical understandings. To use the analogy of the car again, it's not like someone who's powerful actually understands the mechanics of power. It's much more likely that they've sort of just fallen into it. One thing has led to another and they've sort of just gone with it. Their life has unfolded and it's turned out that way. So it has nothing to do with consciousness. It has nothing to do with self-awareness. It has nothing to do with self-knowledge. It's, it's possible to be really powerful, really famous really rich, to have heaps of money, heaps of influence, and yet to have no idea why, no idea how, no idea what led to that situation, no idea why your behaviors led to that situation, no idea how it continues to be so, 
and to have no awareness of the actual experience itself. It's like driving a car and not knowing a single thing about the engine. It's also like driving a car down the street and not seeing a single thing that's on the street. Now, it's possible to do this. It's actually possible to drive for three hours and not see a single thing. You get in your car, drive off down the highway, and when you get out, someone asks you, well, what did you see along the way? And you're dumbfounded. You go, oh, I wasn't paying attention. And they could say, well, what were you thinking about on the way? And you could say, well, I forgot. Now, someone who has awareness, someone who is conscious, even just a little bit, can answer those questions. What did you see along the way? What did you think about along the way? And the more conscious they are, the more detailed a response they will have. Now, there is a, another factor to understand, which is articulating consciousness is different to the experiencing of it. So if the Zen master is in the car and he drives down the road, he will see lots of things. That will be a rich experience to him. And yet you'll ask him, and he might not give much of an answer. So he might not have this elaborate explanation. Whereas someone who is conscious and someone who can articulate it, well, they'll articulate quite a lot. But the experience is the important thing. The thing that really reigns is the experience. So you get in your car, you drive for three hours down the highway, and you get out and someone asks you, what did you see along the way? And what did you think about along the way? And the answer can either be a answer that you give in words or an answer that you don't give in words but is still the experience, you've had the same experience, or it can be completely unconscious and there's no answer and no experience. And that's the difference between awareness and unawareness. That's the difference between being conscious and not being conscious. And when you realize this, you think, well, <laughs> how do I improve my consciousness, right? How do, I, how do I have it so that I can drive that three hours and get to the end and, well, I, I, I had these smells, I remember these sights, I remember that hill, there's specific details, I remember that truck, I remember seeing that animal, I remember those birds, I remember that part where there was different fences and different trees. I remember when the weather was changing this way and I was thinking about this part of my life and I was thinking about this person and I had this feeling in my body 
I had these emotions come up. I had different things. Like it's, it's it's really rich. It's this, it's like this glory. Like you know, just just going for a three hour drive becomes this. Gl- it, it's this glorious, magical thing. It's this beautiful thing. And yet, this is the analogy of someone who's in power. This is the analogy of someone who is rich famous and powerful or influential. Because you can ask, how much of that life are they really living? How much have they really experienced deeply? And there are more examples. I mean, there's influential people I mean, who, who is influential? That, that's a huge category. We can say there's political influence or there's cultural influence. That's two very broad categories. And they're very different, right? A musician, a musician can write a song which will affect a culture. But that's not the same as a politician's kind of influence where they write a policy or a law which will affect a culture or a people's. Now, they both do affect the culture, the people's, but in different ways. And there are different limits and there are different things that are within the mechanics of those two particular types of influence that differentiate them. And there are so many examples. There are so many different ways in which that manifests itself. Now, another person... I've got, or another type of person, is the interesting person. So this is a little bit different to the the famous or rich person. I mean, maybe maybe it does just collapse back, right? Famous people are famous because they're interesting. But I don't know. I don't know if I buy that. <laughs> I don't know if I can really swallow that. There are there are a lot of boring famous people out there. <laughs> And maybe, maybe it's the case that their fame is what makes them. It's like a, a sort of snowball, you know, like they're, they're interesting because they're famous and they're famous because they're interesting. It's like this castle in the cloud sort of thing. Maybe, maybe that's the case. But at least for me, another thing that came to mind is someone who's interesting. Like when I, when I have interest in someone, they, they have a kind of power over me. They have a kind of they have a kind of effect on me, like I want to be around, like I want to know, I want to know more about you, I want to talk to you, I want to understand what it's really like for you, what do you do, how do you do it, how how is it that you do these things, what are you thinking about when you're doing these things, like this, like there's this incredible interest, and there's so much that I I would do for that person. There's so much that like there's this there's this kind of attraction for someone like that. And it does depend on the person. Like for some in in some cases in in the past, it's like, well, can I join your organization? Can I join your cause? Sort of thing. In other situations, it's like, well, can we be friends? Can we hang out? And that's a very <laughs> that's a very sort of Funny dynamic, isn't it? Like to to admire someone. This is sort of like the fanboy mechanic. To really 
to really admire someone. That's not the, quite the same as loving them or feeling love between them or fearing them. This can be maybe like the third prong on the triangle if we have love, fear, and admiration or to, to adore someone. It's, it, it's really peculiar. And there have been people, I mean, it's, it's, almost, it's almost hopeless to admire someone so much because you can't, you can't really do anything with that. This is maybe why I find, I've found it so confusing and why it's so, like, like what, what are you supposed to do when you admire someone? Like, say, that, say there's no cause. Or there's nothing that they want from you. You can't, you can't give them something in that situation. It's like, okay, well, I want to give you gifts. Or I want to help you. Or I want to do something for you. It's like, well, I don't want those gifts. There's no occasion for those gifts. I don't need your help. I don't need anything from you. I'm perfectly fine how I am. And I have no cause. I have no organization. It's not like I'm running a business and I need to employ you. Nothing like that. It's like, well, like, like, what am I supposed to do? I'm just, I'm just sitting here with this feeling of just like attraction and admira and awe. Like I'm in awe of this person. And it's on all the levels. It's like emotional. It's my state. It's my mind. It's my quality of existence. All of, all of the corners are going off. And it's, it's directed right at this person. And it's like, well, you can't do anything about it. And that's a, very, that's a very peculiar little pocket. That's a very funny little thing to understand in relation to the mechanics of power. And in fact, this can be reversed both ways. This little pocket can be taken both ways because you can, you can walk around saying, well, I don't need anything from anyone. I don't need any gifts. I don't need anyone to work for me. I understand that my independence is what's going to cause that admiration to come to me. And of course, this is a, this is a tricky little this is a really tricky little game, right? Because you can't just walk around saying, I don't need anyone. I don't need anything as a, as a thought. And then it works. <laughs> That's not how it works at all. Because really, you do need people. You do need things. You do want things. It's almost like to be independent is a epiphenomenon or an emergent phenomenon that happens when you do certain techniques and processes that will bring you to that. It's not a technique in itself. It's not a state of mind that you can use to bring yourself. You can't, you can't use your mind to bring yourself to that state or to have that trait or that quality within you as a person. <laughs> but it's something to be understood. The independence is to be understood. Now, the other side of the pocket is to say, well, I do have a cause. I do want gifts. I do have 
things that I need from others. So I'm going to set things up so that people want to give that to me. I'm going to set things up so that they are having that kind of attraction towards me. So this would be like the employer who is being independent in order to have people be attracted to them to work for them. This is the employer that says, look, I don't need anyone because there's always someone else that can get the job. There's always someone else that wants the job. And that's a funny little tangle. That's a funny little thing that's going on in there. Because that admiration, well, you know, maybe maybe this is a deeper rabbit hole. Maybe admiration is one of those things we have to go into from a different angle and doesn't quite fit in with power and love. But at least that's an avenue. At least that's something that is sort of a branch off this tree. Now, to continue on with our types of people, I mean, we've talked about intimate partner a little bit. And the same thing also applies with a family member. And sort of this side of it is people known personally to you who are a little bit closer to home and a friendship fits into the same category. And, And friendship, well, I mean... You can't, you can't be friends with someone who has power over you. That's not friendship. Like someone who incites fear or pain or isolation. That, that, that's like, oh, if you're not friends with me, you wouldn't have friends. You wouldn't be friends with anyone else. Right? That's the, the fear of isolation or the fear, the, the end of belonging, a sort of being outcast sort of thing. That's, that's like, of course, no one would say that. Or maybe someone would say that, but whether it's said or not, the mechanics is there. The mechanics are there. The, the dynamics are there. Like the, the relation by an attitude of, oh, if you weren't friends with me, you wouldn't be friends with anyone. Well, then that's that's apparent. And that can be apparent whether it's true or not. It's almost like a, a phenomenon unto itself that occurs between two people. So it might be the case that, well, actually you would have other friends and you even do have other friends. And yet still that vibe is happening between you of, oh, I'm your only friend and if it wasn't for me, well, you'd be in trouble. You'd be isolated. You wouldn't belong. Whereas on the other side of it, right, love, as opposed to fear, is a great basis for a friendship. In fact, we could say that it's because of love that we are friends with who we are friends with. Emotionally terms of our sensations, in terms of our state. Now here we could say that, well, the definition of love is breaking down. You're, put, you're stretching it too far. 
And another way to put this would be to say that you're friends with someone who is similar in their composition to you. Which means the kind of emotions you have can determine the kinds of people. Well, that's not the right way to put it. The, the, the other way to put it would be, or the right way to put it would be, you are friends with people who have similar emotional profiles to you. You are friends with the people who think this similar sort of way to you. You are friends with the sort of people who have a similar quality of existence to you, and so on. So love, to say that, well, the experience of love determines... Well, I mean, here's the funny thing, because if you, if you really break into love, it's, it's something beyond that, right? If you're, if you're feeling, well, I mean, well, which, which is it? I mean, which would it be? Say, say someone just experiences love on all levels, and then they have this friend who doesn't experience it. Well, that's where the force comes in. That's where you're saying, I'm putting my qualities or my experiences onto someone. And then it can be like, well, that friend can freak out, right? They're not, they're not open to it or it's something new. And then they have to run away. Then they can't be friends with them. Or, of course, it could be the other way that they open and they grow together as friends. So really, there's, there's a back and forth. There's a two ways about it. There's always two ways about it. And then the other side of it is, well, you can have this experience of love and then you can go to this friend and they can not, they don't take it or they put it down and then the love dies within you. Because if you send out love, I mean, I mean, this is one of the things to understand. If you send out love to the world and then it's not accepted, well, that's where power comes into it. Because you can say, my love wasn't accepted, so it was wasted. So why love? And then the love dies. The feeling dies. The state of love dies. But the real power, the true force within someone, when someone really does love, is they send it out and it's not received, but they send it out anyway. This is where we talk about unconditional love. And unconditional love is an extraordinary extraordinarily powerful thing. And people notice. If you love someone and then it's knocked back and you go, oh, well, it's obvious. The truth does prevail. People know either intuitively or even just consciously. It becomes obvious. 
And when there's unconditional love, well, that's when someone is really pushing out into all directions, into all people. Because another way of saying this is to say, well, or another way of looking into this is to say, well, there's certain people in my life which I can love and there's certain people that can't, that I can't. And that is an indication of your mastery over love or your relation with love. I don't know if love is really something we master or have control over. It's not quite like that. It's more like it's more like something we're open to or we're in relationship with or we're maturing into or we have wisdom of. It's more like that. And really, to be going up or to be going forwards in the wisdom of love is to be ever-expanding the conditions by which you can love. And this is what's so great about having a pet doggy. Because the pet doggy receives love and accepts it. And they don't say anything about it. They simply accept it. Now, of course, they don't say anything about it because they can't talk. <laughs> they don't have that problem of the mind. They don't have the problem of the psychology coming in to scramble things. And it is possible to really love, really, so deeply, the pet doggy, the little doggy. Because the doggy is simply accepting of however you want to push yourself onto it. And you could say a measure of a person is how they treat their pet doggy. Because the doggy, I mean, the, the doggy is powerless, right? The doggy has no power at all over you. The doggy is completely dependent for food, for shelter, which is the, the physical level, and then all the others as well. And yet, that's how they have so much love. That's how they are able to receive so much love, is because of their powerlessness. You can see in that, in that example, the word power and powerlessness reverses because the doggy in so many ways is the most powerful to receive so much love and to be given the shelter the, the dog is treated like a king the size of a house for a dog is like a palace for us right it's a mansion for a doggy to sleep on the bed that's a giant bed. It's royalty. The pets in our culture live like royalty when they are in a house and they are loved by their owners. And that is, that is power. That is the perfect image of power. Because who wouldn't want that quality of existence? 
Who wouldn't want that life? And it's because, I mean, I mean, here we really need to have two definitions of the word power, right? So what what is power? It's the power is the ability for you to have your quality of existence as good as it possibly can be, right? That's what anyone who wants power wants. They want their quality of existence to be the best it possibly can be. So they set up everything all around them as elaborately as they can to make their own personal situation the best that it can be. Now, in the case of a dictator, they're doing all sorts of elaborate things because they not only have their house and their bodyguards and their whatever it is, material things around them, but they also have their ideology. They're also trying to sort out their view of the world. They've, they're trying to get their, their perspective and cram it onto reality. And they're trying to fix all the things that they see as problems to make their quali- the quality of their mind and their ideology and their concepts of the world and their perspective fit and to be harmonious. Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, they were all trying to have a harmony between their view of the world and how the world was. And they used everything that they could to bring themselves closer to that. And it was quite destructive. You can see that there was there was no harmony. The quality of mind, the quality of their perspective was for, for all of them, for all of those leaders. They had a terrible time. It was dissonance. It was discordant. There was no harmony. There was no symphony at all. And yet you see love as power as really the ultimate answer to how do you make the quality of your existence as good as it possibly can be. When you're in love, you achieve that. When you feel the love, when you experience the love, you have that. And it doesn't mean that you have material things. You can experience that without the perfect house, without the perfect car, without the perfect life circumstances. If you have love, then, well, you're breaking into no mind and things are perfectly harmonious between your perspective and reality. And your emotions are sweet, your sensations in your body are sweet, your state is pleasurable, your mind is clear, and this all flows into your quality of existence.
So that's a little bit about, well, what we can get from Little Doggy. Comparing, comparing Little Doggy with the dictator is exactly how you understand the mechanics of power and love. It really is the only connection you need to understand. Compare, compare the quality of life between your pet dog and a dictator. And if you can't see, if you can see how far better off the little doggy is, then you're well on your way to understanding the mechanics of power and how it's related to love. Now, <laughs> if you're listening to this, you're probably not thinking, oh, but the dictator has such a, like, you could see how delusional it would be, right? You can see how much how much trickery there is in in the the image of the dictator, like, oh, but you have so much power. You can do whatever you want. People will do whatever you say. And you're really, and you have, oh, yeah, you know, there's a, there's a real, uh, there's a sort of the devil is offering this little <laughs> there's the temptation there to be the dictator like if you if you oh, just for one day i wish i could be that sort of super powerful dictator but really i mean maybe it would be of much benefit to all of us, if we could just for one day live as a dictator, consciously, and then come back to our lives. And really, you could say the same about the little doggy, right? If only we could live for one day as little doggy, and then come back to our lives. Well, we would, I think many people would probably actually like to live like little doggy. He's got a pretty relaxed sort of lifestyle, pretty happy sort of life. But of course, I mean, the comparison breaks down because you say, well, what we're really after is a variety of experience and humans experience so much more than just what the little doggies experience. So <laughs> maybe that as an example wouldn't break down. But the, the fundamental thing to, to come from that is to experience multiple forms of existence, to experience different ways of living. To have multiple experiences. That is the glory of being human. It's also the agony of being a human. But that's what we're working with. That's what we're dealing with. That's the real key insight from that. Now, the last person or another, one more person I wanted to talk about was the genie. Now, of course, you remember there's a very famous Disney movie called Aladdin. And the genie is an archetype. He's a very old archetype. The genie has come up in many mythological stories, but probably most famously, most recently, as the genie in Aladdin. And it's, it's so interesting it's so interesting how that image is displayed or how that character has sort of two sides from him. And 
Just think about it. Just remember what happens in that story. What happens to the character of the genie? Let me remind you. Let's talk about it again. Let's go back into it. The genie, well, first of all, the thing that you, the, the thing that's most striking about the genie is his freedom. When the re- lamp is rubbed, he's, he comes out and he says, oh, it's so great to be out of there. I've been in that, stuck in that cave for 10,000 years and it feels great to be out of here. So that's the first thing, freedom. What is the greatest power? Freedom. And then he looks around and he sees Aladdin and he sings the song. And what does he sing? You've never had a friend like me. Friendship. That's the key word, friendship. And it's this big dance and this big orchestral jazz song that he sings about all the things that he can do for him. He says, I can do this for you. I can give you this. I can make your dreams come true. I pride myself on service. You are the boss. I am at your service. I am here to do your bidding. You've never had a friend like me. Now, isn't that an amazing power? That's the power of the genie. It's his service. It's his giving. And it's his ability to make good things happen for you. Now, we see the other side of the genie and his power when he becomes the servant of the bad guy, Jafar. So he's friends with Aladdin, with all his power. And then he's the servant, or he's almost more like the slave, to Jafar. And the powers, the abilities of the genie have a totally different quality when he's serving Jafar. You see him. You see him like looking down. He's hunched over. He's got a sad face. He talks very slowly. And he says, sorry, sorry, Al. Jafar is my master now. And look at what Jafar does with the power of the genie. He uses it for his own malice. He uses it to incite fear. He uses it for his own gain, for his own power, his own political influence. And he does that by inflicting suffering on others, imprisoning others, restricting their freedom. And ultimately, threatening to end those that oppose him. So on both sides of it, you have power, the power of the genie. So if if the genie is sort of the the metaphorical meaning of power, the metaphorical manifestation of power, then you have the side of love, which is the friendship that occurs within Aladdin, and you have fear, which occurs within Jafar. And those are the two parallel opposites. Those are the two sides of the same coin. 
So the genie, yeah, I mean, I think it's just amazing that that image is there and that's in that story. I mean, it's it's a kid's movie. I mean, I would never have understood that or been able to explain that as a kid. I mean, what kid can? And I guess the, the question is you can say, well, what what of it? What's the implication? Well, of course, the implication is to be a friend. And you can be both sides of it, right? You can be you can be Aladdin or you can be the genie. When service really comes into it. That's th- this is where dedication comes into it. When you really understand this, you get into the the qualities, like the the deeper qualities or the practical virtues we could say of love, like dedication. Like hope like selfless sacrifice so when you do something for someone and they don't even know that you've done it for them or you don't get credit for it that's a kind of selfless sacrifice and you can see how that ties in with unconditional love when you understand that the most powerful thing is unconditional love you realize well i need to continually put out things even though they won't be reflected back to me, even though they may completely go to waste. And really, there's a lot in that. There's a lot in dedication. There's a lot in acting on something because now we're talking about love in action. We're talking about love as something as not just an experience or a sensation or an emotion. It's like, well, what do I do? And that's where you start to see that an action, which doesn't have a nice gooey, soft feeling, or even a tingling ecstasy sensation, and not even is a pleasant state or has pleasant thoughts, can still be an act of love. And if you can understand that, you're well on your way to understanding how the knife and fork in the kitchen can be within love or have love pervading through them. So I think that's that's probably almost enough to chew on. <laughs> There's a few things that will most likely come up again, but that's at least a broad outline of power and how it's related to love. And I hope you've enjoyed these examples. And just to just to reiterate two more things, or to sort of bring up two rabbit holes, two very big rabbit holes that we can discuss in a later date, I would say that freedom is a key principle and freedom and love and freedom and power is closely related. I mean, we could have we could have gone through all of this, all of these examples, all of these states, all of these structures, all these cognitive shapes with just freedom. And freedom would have revealed the same thing to us. It would have been in a sense the same conversation. 
And maybe at another date, we will have that conversation and you'll see how that is the case. But just for now, understand that freedom is one of those really big, it's, it's the crown jewel. It's the, it's the pinnacle of love and power. And then the other one that we didn't really mention much, which is just as big, is truth. So the truth will prevail in the end. That is a rabbit hole, which is as big as power, as big as love, and even as big as war. So if you haven't also listened to the other conversation, the mechanics of war, you could probably go and do that and you could see how this fits in. I think the, the, these two conversations, they really go together. They really should have been done. They should be listened to at the same time. <laughs> you really, like I said at the start, you need to know all of it at the same time. <laughs> there needs to be a unifying thing that brings it all together. But, of course, we, we continue in linear fashion. And the rabbit hole of truth, well, we'll get to that. In a sense, it's all truth. In a sense, that is, that is what we're talking about. And, when, and we're not even talking about it. We are talking it. We are talking truth. With all, with all the words, with every single word that comes out. And I don't mean personally. I don't mean, oh, I'm not, I'm not getting on some high horse of saying, oh, I, I am speaking the truth. No, don't get me wrong. That's not the case at all. I mean, I mean every word that a- anyone says ever is a truth. And of course, that does include my words. It just happens that we're here in this situation right now. But truth really does pervade all things. Just as love does. Just as power does. Just as war does. And also just as freedom does. What exists, exists because of the freedom of existence. And that's all I have to say for now.